and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus Van Staden from the Center for Chinese Studies at Stellenbosch University in Cape Town, South Africa. Good afternoon, Kobus. Good afternoon. I'm actually in Johannesburg today. I keep I, switching back and forth. <laughs> I never seem to get that right. Uh, and I'm also thrilled today to have uh, back on the show our uh, Anne Sherman, who's in Beijing at Tsinghua University. Uh, good evening, Anne. Good evening. Thanks for having me. And so, for those of you who are not familiar with Anne's voice, you may be familiar with her writing.、Uh, if you follow us on our Facebook page at facebook.com/slash/ChinaAfricaProject, Anne is doing an amazing job moderating the community there. That is now over seventeen thousand strong.、Uh, it's particularly strong from、uh, from North Africa and Africa and India as well, right, Anne? We have a, quite a bit of、uh, people, folks from South Asia. That's correct, and、uh, you know, spread the word. Tell your friends. We're always looking for more discussion and dialogue from you all. And what was nice this week is we had some folks actually send us some pictures of uh, uh, from there. You know, they bumped into some Zambians getting ripped off by Chinese merchants over in、uh, Ningbo. And that was really exciting to actually post up some pictures of that. So, if you've got any China Africa related media pictures, papers, and things that you'd like us to post and try and start a conversation,、uh, send a send a note to us. You can send it to me at Eric at ChinaAfricaProject.com or post it right up. On Facebook, so let's get on with our show today, and we're really excited to have as our special guest Hanan Ferjani, who is in Cardiff, Wales, where she's a master's candidate uh, in uh, international journalism. But more importantly, and more relevant for us, she's also the author of a September 2012 report for the Center for Chinese Studies at Stellenbosch, Kobus's stomping grounds,、uh, on African students in China: an exploration of increasing numbers and their motivations in Beijing. Hanan, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me. Wonderful. Well, we're going to talk about three topics today, and that's what our normal format is.、Uh, first, it's really、uh, the, you know another week, another you know set of killings of Chinese nationals in West Africa. We're going to talk about、uh, two deaths that happened this week in, in northern Nigeria,、uh, and then also a plea from a an, an interest group to for the Nigerian government and President Goodluck Jonathan. To offer more protection for Chinese nationals, and saying how it's important for the national economy. Then we're going to move on to the leadership changes that happened this past week、uh, in the United States and in China. Well, in fact, in the United States, it of course was the re-election of、uh, President Barack Obama, and also in、uh, in Beijing, the ascendance of Xi Jinping to the presidency. And we'll talk about what the impact is for Africa in that trilateral relationship. And finally, we're going to end. On、uh, Hanan's very interesting report on African students in China, and then we're also going to get a perspective from Anne, who's there and actually in a dorm with African students. So we'll have a, a kind of a real first-person perspective. So、um, does that sound good, guys? Yes,、yeah, sounds, sounds great. Okay, moving on now. Let's get started with、uh, Nigeria.、Uh, Kobus, it seems like it was just yesterday, and in fact, it really was that we were talking about、uh, killings of Chinese nationals in、uh, Nigeria. This was, in fact, a topic on our show last week, and here we are again. The, this, this latest incident occurred in northeast Nigeria, and、uh, it, it appears to be that there is no indication that these. Two Chinese construction workers were targeted by Boko Haram,、uh, but it does appear that they were in the wrong place at the wrong time, and、uh, and caused and really,、uh, you know, just suffered the consequence of it. Just before I get to you, Kobus, on this, they、uh, they were they were gunned down in northeast Borno State, and of course, in the northern Nigeria, northeastern Nigeria areas, was where there's been about a year and a half to two years of very very violent insurgency by Boko Haram, which is a Islamic fundamentalist. Uh, group, 
uh, and uh, Chinese construction workers, cooks, and other personnel for state-owned enterprises seem to be getting caught up in the crossfire. Kobus, what was your reading of, of this week's killing? Is in, Do you think that this will ultimately have any broader impact on Sino-Nigerian relations? Well, I mean, Sino-Nigerian relations is becoming more more complicated by the day in the sense that there's so so much um, investment and investment from so many di- different Chinese sources. Um, I don't think this will necessarily harm the relations, but what is interesting is that this is for the first time that I've seen um, is, uh, you know, a, a a Chinese pressure group, uh, you know, making the case that they need to be protected. Um, you know, before, when the previous people were killed, um, we know up to four Chinese nationals have been killed in Nigeria this year, um, apparently by, by either by criminals or by, by terrorists. And, um, you know, the previous ones, you didn't see this kind of um, group reaction. This time, um, a body called the Goods Made in Africa Importers Association. Goods Made in China um, Put together Importers, big reports uh, saying that they create COVID. 35 million jobs in Nigeria. I'm not really 100% sure how they got to that number. But, uh, and, and for that reason, even though Chinese people are not specifically targeted, they have to be more specifically protected. Sure. So I thought that was pretty interesting. Yeah, uh, let me just make a one minor correction to the Goods Made in China Importers Association that made that... Uh, oh, sorry, sorry. No, no problem. And so, uh, so basically what this group is saying, and this is the first time that we've seen an interest group actually make an appeal to, to the president to say, listen, there is more at stake than you realize when, 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 when Chinese nationals are being killed. But yet, at this point, it does not appear that there has been any official reaction from Beijing, unlike what we saw uh, in Ghana. Now, it was interesting. We had a discussion about this about three weeks ago on the show, how the Chinese foreign ministry did make an appeal to the Ghanaian government to, to uh, after the killing of a 16-year-old uh, Chinese national young man who was uh, apparently illegally gold mining, but we have not seen the same reaction coming out of Beijing towards Nigeria. And I wonder if that's because Nigeria is so important to China as a base for uh, its, its operations in Africa as a whole. Hanan, when you look at these killings, do you see anything more than just, you know, well, guess what? You know, it's a tough part of the world to be in. Uh, they shouldn't, maybe they shouldn't be there. Foreign nationals are in, shouldn't necessarily be in places that have insurgencies in them. Or do you see something, a potential threat to, to China's presence in Africa if they continue to be the victims of these kinds of crimes? Well, um, I know, I'm no expert, obviously, on the, pro- on the, on the, um, on the topic, but I, I believe that the, uh, Exactions like, like that have been happening quite quite often in the past years. Um, uh, Chinese workers have been exposed to like quite uh, uh, violence and uh, kidnapping as well. So I believe that if China has, if I think China has to like step up and do something about it, probably uh, try and like, do something about its, its safety for for its workers uh, abroad, especially in areas such as I mean, northern state of Nigeria has always been a pretty. Um, uh, unsafe, and uh, I don't believe that they ensure they haven't because China's not known for um, really um, d- dealing with uh, security issues and safety issues for its workers. Okay. But I believe that this could be it could, there could be a change on that area. So let me ask you a question here: What? How do you think people would respond if you had either Chinese? Security- you mean African? Uh, yeah, how do how do you think Africans, particularly Nigerians, would respond? Uh, just again, hypothetically, uh, since none of us here are frankly are experts on this. Um, <laughs> but this, uh, how do you think people would respond to the presence of armed security forces or or, or, or mercenary contractors who fire back at uh, at, at Boko Haram uh, or anybody? I mean, that's a pretty contentious step. I- 
Yeah, I believe that the response will not be good. It, it will see, be seen as uh, something that is quite contradictory uh, to the official discourse that China has and that it's, uh, it doesn't want to uh, be uh, neocolonialist and uh, imperialist. So that would be obviously controversial. I think it would have yeah. a negative impact. But also uh, maybe what needs to be done, that's just my opinion, is just like they should maybe work with the governments on, um, I don't know, uh, projects to to uh, ensure safety. Maybe not with their, with their own uh, security uh, mercenaries or any or. Or companies, but maybe with Africans. Well, you know, Kobus, that's really, you know, Hanan brings up an interesting point. In this talk, we've talked about this in other different contexts here, but that, you know, the Nigerian government seems incapable of containing Boko Haram on its own. Now, if it was, if it was, if it was then kind of persuaded by the Chinese government to offer protection to Chinese nationals, Kobus, I can imagine yeah. that uh, Nigerians may not actually take it that well when they are the ones suffering and maybe Chinese get the protection. Yeah, I, yeah, I mean, right you know, 730 people have been killed by Boko Haram in, in Nigeria this year. So, I mean, the poor Chinese obviously would be a, a small percentage of that. Um, I can imagine, you know, the bigger problem is that the Nigerian government isn't being able, isn't able to contain Boko Haram. You know, so, I mean, that's, that's you know, and, and the, the Chinese people seem to be kind of collateral damage to that bigger problem, you know, kind of which is which is very sad. But, you know, kind of there's a, there's a, it's a bigger tragedy for Nigeria at this moment. Um, I think for me another one of the problems is that one, you know, Boko Haram is clearly a, a very rural movement, and the Chinese are building up, are extending urbanity, they're extending the city and roads and so on into this area and being killed in the process. You know, so it's, it's just it's so awful. Well, you know, let's take let's step back and look a little bit, you know, at, at the bigger picture here, and that one of the things that has just differentiated the Chinese from other foreign powers operating in Africa is that they have been willing. Willing to go to places that others feared to go. Um, let's talk about, uh, you know, Sudan is a great example, South Sudan, where, there, you know, amidst the violence, CNPC is continuing to do operations. Egypt, where a lot, while well, a lot of foreigners left, they, uh, they stayed. They were among the first uh, foreign nationals to return to Libya. They're in northern Nigeria. They're in the DRC. I mean, these are really tough neighborhoods. And frankly, it's a bit ballsy for the Chinese to be there. Now, there have been some indications that Beijing is reevaluating this policy and maybe going to be stepping back from uh, some of these more contentious spots. I wonder if we might see, uh, you know, this reevaluation of these killings, what ultimately it leads to is the fact that the Chinese may pull out. And the question for me, and Hanan, I'd like to ask this to you, is if we start to see the Chinese pull out from some of these more contentious areas and they are the only ones who are investing in these dangerous areas, you know, that could have a real negative impact on the economies uh, of these various countries. Yeah, I think it could. And uh, But uh, maybe it's just me, but I don't really see that happening anytime soon. I believe that uh, China's interests are too big right now so for for the government to just pull out but yeah it would definitely have a def- negative impact on 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 their their uh, business and uh, interest there
obviously. Well, it's been... I think, what, I, oh. what I have to wonder, sorry to interrupt, is whether as Chinese uh, workers become more empowered, as their salaries rise and, you know, um, uh, you know, as China goes through that process of their workers becoming, you know, kind of more choosy, I wonder if you're going to get a situation where certain high-skilled Chinese workers like construction engineers and so on simply refuse to work in certain parts of Africa, you know, kind of where, where they, the big companies might face some kind of labor revolt. It seems hard to imagine given the fact that I suspect that a lot of the Chinese who uh, go there do not have the choice in where they are assigned, uh, despite regardless of their education level. So I am, I'm skeptical that that would actually you know, change anything, given the fact that a lot of these contractors would say, okay, you don't want to go to Sudan? Great. Then you don't, come, you don't get the job. We'll hire somebody else. Um, a, lot of African, a lot of Chinese expats in Africa have said that they're there for the money, they're there to work hard and to get the hell out as fast as they possibly can, but that opportunity to make money Money seems like it drives a lot of the decisions. So um, we will keep an eye on this trend going forward. I suspect this is not going to be the last time that we're going to see this. Uh, again, it's been now six deaths in about six different six weeks. So uh, there's definitely yeah. a trend underway now. Okay, so that'll do it for this segment. Uh, this is going to be definitely a topic we're going to keep an eye on in the coming weeks, as no doubt we're going to probably see more of these killings. It just seems like in the past six weeks to see, uh, you know, four to six deaths. Uh, again, it's very important to emphasize that none of the killings appear to be targeting Chinese specifically. It does seem that they are, again, caught in the crossfire of, uh, of, these, of these conflicts, both in, in northern Nigeria and then disturbances in Ghana as well. So West Africa seems to be the flashpoint right now for Chinese nationals who, who, are, who are being killed. Uh, we, of course, keep a, a discussion on this going on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash China Africa Project. And in particular, we'd like to hear what do you think uh, either the Chinese can do or the Africans, uh, Nigerians and Ghanaians in this particular case, should do or could do to protect Chinese nationals or any foreigners operating in, in, in that part of the world? Or do you believe simply that uh, China and, and their investments should pull out to, in order to protect their nationals? Okay, let's move on now to our second topic. And this is going to be very interesting to get Anne's perspective from Beijing. Um, there's been, uh, a, you know, two milestone political events in the United States and China, uh, and they happened in the same week. Of course, m- most of us are familiar with the fact that President uh, Barack Obama defeated, easily defeated for that matter, uh, Mitt Romney in the U.S. presidential elections. Uh, and then at the same time, President uh, now President Xi Jinping uh, took over the reins of power from Hu Jintao, and there's been a leadership change in China, in China as well. So let's talk about now the context for for Africa and, and and look back a little bit on, you know, what the expectations are for Obama, what the expectations are for Xi Jinping. So, and what let's talk very quickly about, did Africa ever come up in the coverage that you were watching in Beijing uh, regarding the leadership change, or is this, you know, really just doesn't measure that high on the agenda for them? Well, I think it's interesting that actually in both cases, in the U.S. and in China, um, you know, you don't see Africa making headlines in either um, transition or election. Um, I think for both, it kind of signals that um, there won't be any huge policy changes. Um, You know, I think that in China, Africa remains uh, maybe a little bit uh, more important um, in terms of maintaining their strong ties and maintaining uh, or, you know, deepening cooperation and deepening integration with um, African countries just because, um, you know, China, China, the Chinese Communist Party has to worry about legitimacy and it has to worry about 
becoming isolated in the international arena and, um, its alliances and its partnerships with African nations are extremely important. Um, I think that, you know, as much as Obama might like to make Africa a higher priority in his agenda, um, I think, you know, realistically, if you look at um, the challenges facing the U.S. right now, um, it's the fiscal cliff and the domestic economy. And, um, you know, in terms of foreign policy, the the U.S. has kind of rebalanced to Asia. And on top of that, we have Syria and Iran giving us um, trouble in the Middle East. And I think that, um, you know, many people have said that uh, Obama failed to capitalize on a lot of goodwill and popularity in Africa when he was elected. But um, unfortunately, I don't know if I see um, a lot of change that will occur um, in the coming four years. Sure. And the one topic of Africa that really did make uh, the headlines in the in the in the debate between Mitt Romney and Barack Obama was, of course, Benghazi in Libya. Uh, so you know, kind of setting the tone in a security context. And, and Cobus, that that's very interesting. When you look back at the first you know term of, of President Obama, th- again, it was a little bit of a disappointment. Okay, obviously, a lot of people in Africa, particularly in Kenya, were especially excited because of uh, Obama's ancestry in Kenya, and they thought mistakenly that that would somehow lead to a closer relationship. But but what's interesting is that for all the contrast between the Bush administration and the Obama administration, Bush, in many ways, was far more engaged. I mean, he had a huge AIDS policy. Uh, he also began the, the ramp up in security. Uh, but at the, for the most part, Obama really just focused on security uh, and, and let a lot of, other, of the other issues fall to the wayside. Do you get that sense of, of palpable disappointment that we're reading about in the media? Yes. Um, you know, a lot, of, a lot of African commentators have been complaining that Obama didn't visit Africa enough. And certainly compared to the Chinese didn't visit Africa often. Um, you know, and there's also, there's even been uh, kind of, uh, that I actually want to ask you guys about uh, what you think, is um, certain commentators have, have uh, argued that he wanted to, to downplay his African ancestry in America because he was dealing with such a hostile uh, political situation and, and such a kind of implicitly, um, you know, like racial issues were so close to, uh, to the surface in the discourse around Obama in, in his first term that he wanted to kind of de-emphasize his Africanness. Um, is, is that something? Does that make sense to you, or do you think that's just a, like an African kind of victim, you know, victim kind of I mean, narrative? Go ahead, Anne. I mean, that's that's definitely something that you hear, and I mean, Obama kind of has the most impossible position of you know trying to downplay and upplay all the different aspects. I mean, you see people who take his African uh, roots, I guess, and you know people call him, say that he doesn't have a real American passport, or they call him Muslim, or all these, you know, crazy things, and, um, I mean, he's had to play a very delicate campaign of, um, you know, trying to balance everything, you know, and gain the most votes, so... Um, I think that that's definitely a part of it. You know, I, I think that's a, probably a very, very small part, but a part nonetheless. I think more importantly is the fact that, you know, to the United States, uh, with and, and I think this is the same in Europe as well, and Hanan, I'm going to get your, your your take on this as well. You know, still when you yeah. talk about Africa, for to most Americans and most Europeans, their eyes roll up on the top of their head, and they think, you know, they think Bono saving little, you know, African AIDS babies, and they think, you know, uh, you know all of those, you know, st- those negative stereotypes, Types, disease, rape, war, uh, you know, 
poverty, all of that. That that is still the dominant narrative in the West when it comes to Africa, and that's a, again, I think that's what's driving. Uh, public perception in the United States and policy as well in the United States. But again, never underestimate how much Americans will focus on security to the expense of absolutely everything. We saw this in Asia after 9-11, in, in many of the ASEAN summits when, you know, at these big summits, the, 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 the Americans would go and all they want to talk about with Thailand, Indonesia, Malaysia, for example, was security. And the Chinese were talking trade, culture, educational exchanges, all of these different types of, uh, of, of facets to the relationship and the Americans only wanted to talk security. Also, one other point, Hanan, before I get to you, in the wake of the Benghazi attacks, um, I suspect that American embassies and consular missions throughout Africa are going to be even more militarized, so making it much more of a focus on security than we had earlier. Hanan, what's your take on the China, Africa, and U.S. perspectives and 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 that trilateral relationship? Well, I think uh, what you just said is, a, is a, it's an excellent point. Um, I've, I've been around a little bit, and uh, being in Europe, it's, I think the, the Western view and perspective, uh, perspective on Africa is always very much limited to um, either humanitarian um, aid or um, help, or, um, like you said, maybe the U.S. with a security um, um, interest, but that's pretty much it. And uh, in that sense, I guess... Ch- the China Africa relation, in some ways, is quite refreshing because it's it's a more uh, different kind of um, perspective, and it's broader and it tackles different areas. And like you said, education and um, economic uh, economics and different things. That so it's uh, it's good to read about it. It's a bit different, and it it allows maybe people who are interested in it to see that Africa is not just. Um, um, like, you know, places with war and violence or just a very, very poor continent. I might add one thing. I actually think I see the, a similarity in that, um, you know, you say that uh, the American public, you know, rolls their eyes when we, they hear Africa. And I think that in China, there is sort of um, a, a reaction when you talk about Africa and when you uh, see in the papers the reports about how much investment or aid or um, the like that China is giving to Africa, I think that there is um, kind of a reaction of why are we giving, you know, why are we focusing so much on Africa and giving so much aid to Africa um, when, you know, China could also use that aid. And so, I mean, I think in in both countries, you know, the U.S. might focus more on security, but China is all about um, the economy. And so, um, you know, I think that there's sort of a uh, a gap between public opinion in both places. Well, that's interesting because that's one of the arguments in the United States as well, that a lot of people have a misperception about how much aid America actually gives overseas. We are, of course, uh, the uh, stingiest nation in the developed world when it comes to aid and and, in a percentage of our budget. We're at 0.001%. Uh, far away from the Millennium Development Goals that the United Nations had set. Uh, so that's an interesting parallel, and that you bring up. Uh, Kobus, I want to bring up one point you know, that, that, that caught my attention this week as well. This is the first leadership change election in the United States, leadership change in China, um, that was broadcast on CCTV with its new presence in Africa. Uh, two things about CCTV's presence in Africa that make it interesting. One, they have this uh, broadcast hub in Nairobi. Uh, and two, they have struck a number of distribution deals throughout the continent, making CCTV now one of the most widely distributed international TV networks uh, available anywhere on the continent. And I think that's interesting as well. And one of the things I was looking at blogs, no way to tell scientifically if this is in fact true, but 
people were actually giving quite good reviews of CCTV's coverage of the U.S. elections with their new broadcast facility in Washington uh, and about 100 journalists on the ground there. And also kind of curious to see what was happening in Beijing and tuning into the leadership, uh, the analysis of the leadership change there. From a media perspective, you know, you and I have been extremely kind of cynical and skeptical that the Chinese can pull off uh, this uh, this ability to, to gain soft power influence in Africa. But it seems like this past week there might have been a hint that they can. Yeah, and what was interesting for me about, about CCTV's coverage was that you know, throughout, all of us have been talking about CCTV's expansion in, in Africa as, as, as you said, as a, a way to generate soft power. And every time CCTV would be saying, like, look, we actually we want to try and get a bigger news power, part of the news power in Africa, we're in competition with the BBC and Al Jazeera in order to provide coverage. And everyone was like, yes, yes, you know, what you actually want to do is build image, build soft power for the Chinese state. And I mean, they might well still, you know, that might well be part of their, their expansion, but they seem to be kind of moving into the role that they were actually insisting that they wanted to have, which is actually do the work of providing news. You know, so I think, I think that's interesting. In a way, you know, they seem to be moving away from their their uh, their Chineseness in a way, and they're becoming just simply a, a news player um, in African market. I think that's that's good news for everyone. Yeah, much. I think it is. I mean, you know, to the to the counterpoint, um, this past week's also seen a lot of coverage of Tibetan. Uh, dissidents who are lighting themselves on fire in protest to Chinese policies there, and that, of course, is not something you're going to see on CCTV. Yeah, there, there you go. Um, so my, you, you, my, think, my point that has limits. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, true. it has limits to its coverage, but I think if you approach CCTV knowing what you're going to get and kind of appreciating its limitations, um, it actually is showing a, a little bit of promise. Uh, CCTV has not been something I've ever been a big fan of over the past years, but again, little hints of, of promise there that's there. So, Anand, very quickly, just want to get the final thought from you. Oh, and go ahead, very quickly. I was going to say uh, just a recommendation. There was a good CCTV, um, there was an article on CTV called Coming to America and Foreign Policy this week, um, kind of about what we're talking about now that I would recommend. That's a good read. So New York Times also in the past couple of weeks has done something on on CCTV America's Washington operation. You can watch them at uh, on their CCTV website There's if you don't have access to it. Hanan, let me give you the, the final thought on, uh, on, the, on this leadership change and kind of the direction that the Americans and the Chinese are taking and the differences, the approaches that they're taking towards Africa and if you kind of see any changes coming in the next few months. I, I don't think when, when it comes to China, as I mean, uh, its perspective, uh, I mean, its, its uh, orientation towards Africa, I don't think it will make much of a difference, like Ascent, because it's been um, going on for years, and uh, I think the dynamic's pretty good. They're pretty happy with it. So I don't see any change on that side. I mean, not that I'm aware of, at least. Okay. And um, okay. I think it's, it's going to continue to try and deepen uh, its relationship with uh, Africa, and like especially... It's economic ties. Yeah. So we'll probably, I guess, you know, Xi Jinping, probably no big change from Hu Jintao. Obama 1 to Obama 2, probably no big change. My guess is probably you're going to see more security emphasis in the United States side. Uh, And and, and they'll talk a good game on kind of offering an alternative to China, as we've seen Hillary Clinton kind of walk her way through Africa, you know, trying to rival the Chinese. But probably status quo is what we're, what we're predicting. I think from this group tonight, uh, we're predicting status quo for at least the foreseeable future. Okay, one thing that may actually tilt in the, this dynamic in the long run uh, is the presence of African students who are in China 
China. Now, when I first went to China, and I was there in 1989, right after Tiananmen Square, one of the things that struck me was uh, how many African students were there. Now, back in those days, that was part of the kind of uh, the, 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 the communist, uh, it was really a Soviet-style exchange program where they brought Africans over from their, uh, you know, their, their, their allied countries, particularly from the Communist Party uh, programs in Angola and also in other countries where there was really close relationships on the party level. Uh, and so there's been a long history of African students studying in China. One of the things that, that came out in Hanan's you know, really interesting report, and I posted this on Twitter. We'll post it again on our Facebook page. Uh, she wrote a, a very detailed report on African students in China is the growth in the student population that's been there. And I think if I read this correctly, since 2003, there's been 20% year-on-year growth uh, in the population. Yeah. Of, and it's just yeah. huge. Uh, Anne, who's studying at Tsinghua University right now in Beijing, can test to the numbers of Chinese who are Africans who are there. Um, and so we're going to talk a little bit about the long-term impact of all of these students who are there and, and their ability to understand China. So first, Hanan, let's go to you and, and give us a couple highlights of your research that you did for Stellenbosch and the Center for Chinese Studies on this report. And what surprised you the most about the, uh, the research project that you, you endeavored to take with uh, African students in China? Well, first, uh, I'd like to say that the idea basically came to me because um, I was in China for the first time in 2010. Before even going to China, my sister lived there and she was a student there. So I guess I was already aware, and she was on a scholarship as well. So I guess I was already aware of the phenomenon of like a Chinese government scholarship given out to African students. So I came already with that idea, and then I met a, a number of, I can't even say how many uh, African students who were there from very different countries uh, all over the continent. I guess then I just thought there was, it was an interesting phenomenon that like was worth make, um, being researched about, and yeah, like the the figures speak from the, for, for themselves. Like um, it's been growing and at a very fast rate in the past few years. And um, the case study that I did was on Beijing, obviously because I had been in Beijing before, so I knew it more about Beijing. I had contacts already, but also because it's um, the biggest uh, foreign student city. It, um, I think it was, it was in 2006 that it had 46,529 foreign students, um, which is a big number. And um, t- today, or at this point, uh, we know that there's at least 28,500 uh, students in, African students in China, and that's, that's excluding uh, private students. So that's very, very, it's a very big uh, phenomenon. Okay. That's, so that's the main things. My- but uh, also I wanted to... Uh, I didn't want to just like talk about figures and statistics. I also wanted to talk about uh, to um, tackle the sociological issues and um, of the system of the government scholarship system as it is today. So I tried to also have uh, one-on-one interviews with uh, some students um, just to see what they thought about um, the scholarship system and what they thought that their role as students, as African students in China, was in the Sino-African framework. And what did they say? Well. Um, well, people who read the report or who will re- read the report will see that it was, um, for most of the students that I interviewed, um, it was, uh, they had like this profile that was, um, they were all uh, very well, very much educated and they were all very um, committed in their, uh, in some associations or in their network of African students. So I guess they had that awareness uh, of Sino-African relations and of how important it was. And they all really wanted to play a role in it. 
But, uh, and I said it as well in my report, it's not necessarily the case for all and every African student that's in China. Um, some of them are just really rolling with the punches and just, um, they just came because uh, they got a scholarship and they're just seeing how things go as, 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 as they do. Um, but yeah, I think there's definitely awareness uh, in some of the students um, that Africa and China, Africa, China is very important. Well, one of the interesting things you pointed out in your report was the fact that uh, because the United States and Europe are tightening up their visa restrictions and their visa regulations, uh, it's more difficult now for certain African students to go study in the West, so therefore China is an option that wasn't there. And let me ask you, you know, my role on the podcast is always to ask the, the politically incorrect questions here. Um, it, it does strike me as, and, I, and I've got two politically incorrect questions, but uh, I'm assuming that most of these African students uh, do not speak Chinese, um, so I'm kind of wondering how do they get, you know, how do they learn in in an environment, assuming they're not just studying Mandarin, but they're actually picking up a, a tangible skill, um, you know, beyond the language study, how do, they, how do they communicate and actually learn anything if they don't speak the language? Well, one of the things that actually struck me the most when I've been talking to them is how few of them are actually interested or committed in uh, learning Mandarin. Um, I kind of was under the impression, I guess maybe um, this comes out in the report, that um, these students were kind of targeted as future China-Africa policymakers or leaders. And what I personally found um, most is that they're... Um, in my experience, truly just here because this was the only scholarship that they could get, or this was the scholarship that was offered, um, that like you said, it's becoming almost impossible to get um, to the U.S. where they might have wanted to go, or to Europe. And this scholarship, you know, is comprehensive. It covers everything for them, and so they can continue their studies here. But in terms of really um, wanting to, uh, I guess, assimilate or, um, you know, speak Chinese, um, I actually am shocked by how few are really, really committed to that, which for me is interesting because I find it almost crippling to not speak (laughs) Chinese here. Um, You know, of course you can get by easily, but I feel like you really miss a lot of what's going on and um, understanding if you don't understand the language. Um, And so I think... I don't know, uh, Hanan, I'm sure you'll agree with this, but there's you can definitely see that um, communities stick together and um, they form groups and they all know each other. Um, and, you know, it kind of is an ecosystem within the larger uh, Beijing University uh, area of, of African students. Yeah, it's, it's, it's absolutely true. Um, that's one of the things that come out of my report as well. It's that um, communities and uh, Associations, especially nationalities-wise, uh, are very important for African students. Obviously, when they feel stranded when they first come to China because they don't know the language. Um, some, for some of them, it's the first time that they've ever traveled outside of their country. So um, that that community that's already based there and that knows about China is very helpful for them. And that's why they kind of really stick to that. And sometimes, well, it can be good, but obviously it has drawbacks because... I guess uh, maybe African students stick to themselves too. They don't really uh, interact with other uh, nationalities or 
and mostly Chinese people, but that's that's not just Africans. I think it's or the foreigners community in China usually. Which of course is uh, exactly how a lot of Chinese uh, foreign students in the United system, States but I, but do it ha- as well. Sorry. Oh, sorry. No, no, sorry. <laughs> well, I was just saying that that's exactly one of the criticisms of Chinese uh, overseas students in the United States is that they end yeah. up coming to these universities, clustering together, speaking Chinese together, yeah. and not actually assimilating and learning the language and taking full advantage of being in a foreign country, and as a result, don't benefit from the experience as much as if they, you know, kind of abandoned their own clique. Um, I was wondering if you knew anything about uh, what, uh, you know, the majority of the students, um, you know, who study, the African students who study in Beijing go on to do. Um, You know, I'm kind of interested in whether they, you know, return to their to their original, you know, native country, if they go on to Europe or the U.S., or if they, you know, what percentage stay in China, because I kind of find, um, you know, two camps, and I think a, a lot, you know, they don't want to go back to their country, but they they don't want to stay in China, whereas others are, you know, here trying to, they, they kind of get sucked up into China, and they want to start their own business, or, um, you know, they want to remain. But I, I didn't know if you kind of did any follow-up on the students that you studied. I did uh, uh, talk to a few, and uh, I guess the thing that I that came up was also that some of them want to stay, but are not believe are, they're they're not given enough opportunities in terms of uh, professional opportunities in China uh, right, right after the studies. Um, it's not the case for everybody. I, I know a few that uh, were working in China in Chinese companies or that actually started up their business. But this is quite a rare numbers a number, I think, a, a rare uh, amount of people. I believe that um, lots of students would want to, to remain in China because they still believe that it's uh, they, they are more likely to find anything than going. Some of them going back home or going to the U.S. or, or Europe because also. For Europe, we know um, that employment has become really hard, and even just for immigration uh, purposes or issues, they they couldn't even go. So I think China for them is just probably the the easiest option. Well, it may be the easiest option from a you know a a logistics point of view because they're already there. But you know, China is not actually the most tolerant society when it comes to diversity. Uh, Discrimination is is a big problem, and increasingly, not just for, for 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 black Africans, but now we're seeing, you know, problems that didn't affect whites uh, affecting whites. You know, there's there's an, a, a growing xenophobia that that is more prevalent. Uh, and China goes through waves of this over the years, but it's never been really an easy place for for black African immigrants to be in the in the levels of racism. And do you hear from any of the students that are in your dorms about some of the difficulties in the racism that they that they might encounter, or is that just something that they accept as part of being in a foreign country? No, I mean, that's absolutely a huge issue. I think it's one of the biggest, um, just, you know, everyday life, how they're treated. Um, I've seen it, you know, being with them, trying to hail a cab or trying to buy something. Um, they're treated completely differently. And I can even, I mean, I can just myself talk to tax, you know, people on the street, Chinese, and, um, there's a very negative perception of, of Africans. Um, even students here who are, you know, or people who have established businesses. Um, you know, I don't think this is a very welcoming place, to be honest. Um, so it's a lot like New York, Africa. actually. Um, Getting a cab scary. in New York um, for a black man is hard. Um, yeah, I mean, honestly, I was, I think I told you all this story, but I was, um, there was a big snowstorm here last week, and I was with three Moroccans. We were trying to get a cab home. It was like blizzarding. And um, there was two cabs that almost stopped. And I 
swear they saw my friends and kept going. And so my friends just walked away and stood away from me and we were easily able to get a cab. But this is something that people face every day. I was talking to um, a different cab driver, although I don't live in cabs, but on the night (laughs) of the election and I was joking with him and I told him that Obama won. He said, oh, do you like Obama? And I jokingly said, yes, Obama is my boyfriend. And he said, oh, why would you ever want to be, uh, why would you ever like a, a African, a black person? Hanan, did you but come up against real. this racism and this kind of provincialism in your research and the response that it had from African students who were there? Oh, was it? Oh, I thought you were talking to Anne. Sorry. No, I'm sorry. <laughs> um, uh, yes, especially the, the, like, the cab is just the, I think the most uh, eloquent example of this. I've had it when I was in China. Um, Many of my friends have had many uh, arguments with uh, taxi drivers because, first of all, it's hard to get a cab when you're a black person in in China and Beijing, particularly in China. And also, when you actually do get a cab, you often get into arguments with the cab drivers because they, they also, it's a different culture and, uh, and I don't know if you guys agree with me, but um, Chinese don't really uh, filter. <laughs> <laughs> they don't know what is politi- politically correct and what is not. So they will just go ahead and tell you, oh yeah, I don't like black people or um, yeah, I think you are dirty or they just speak their mind. So it, gets, it can easily go uh, the wrong way. I've, I had I have quite a few few friends who who have been in arguments with very violent arguments with uh, Chinese uh, taxi drivers, actually. Well, on a more serious level, beyond just taxis, we of course saw this uh, earlier in the year in Guangzhou's chocolate city, Chaokadicheng, uh, when there there have been a number of disturbances between the the overseas African community there and the local population. Uh, a lot of it centered around, of course, on the onerous uh, immigration process that a lot of people have to go through if they want to try and go through illegal immigration. Most of the uh, of the population in uh, Chaokadicheng is, for the most part, from what I understand, to be an illegal population. Uh, and that makes it difficult, too. And, and the immigration process in China is difficult for absolutely everyone. And you will find this out next year when you want to get a job there. You have to go through these horrifying you know, lines to get uh, – and it's even probably more difficult for, for black Africans. Uh, but one interesting point, and I want to put on a counterpoint on this, and this is something that uh, – I want to end this conversation on a positive note, is you know, I've, I've said one of my theories is the fact that in the next 10 to 15 years, you're going to see a repatriation – of so many of these middle and upper management uh, uh, Chinese executives and, and overseas staff in Africa who will eventually be going back to China. And they're going to be bringing with them language skills, cultural skills. They're going to bring back experiences from across the continent that will inform them as political leaders, as business leaders, and as cultural leaders in China. So the next generation of leaders is taking shape right now in Africa. And there might be something to be said about the fact that a new generation of young Africans is being at least introduced to China and having a sensitivity that they wouldn't otherwise have if they weren't there. So let's do a quick round to get final thoughts on this. Anne, your, your kind of big view, 20,000 foot and high kind of uh, perspective on, on the students, are they benefiting from it? Are these just elite students or is this, frankly, kind of like the American students that go over to China to study Chinese? And I put that in air quotes because they basically go over, they eat some Chinese food, they hang out with each other, they party a little bit, but they really don't take home that much. Which one is it? 
Well, I, I have two points. Yeah, I mean, I do think that the Chinese, that the Africans here, excuse me, are benefiting a lot, and I think that they're very serious. Um, and I think it's a completely different experience than privileged white kids going to China for a semester. Um, but my, I guess one of the questions that this report raised, um, or this whole trend, I guess, raised to me was, um, you know, yeah, you see. Uh, increasing number of Africans going to China and China becoming, you know, a more popular or attractive place to study. But in my mind, um, you know, where, if you think about um, where do ideas and research institutes and innovation, where does that kind of thing thrive and where, you know, where is that the best place to go? I mean, it's not China where, you know, we have censorship right now. I can barely get online, you know, um, where and free thought here. And I think that um, if China wants to continue to attract Africans or to continue to build this model, they still have a far way to go in terms of competing with the U.S. Um, I don't or, know what you guys think about that. Yeah, or other Asian countries for that matter. Uh, Hanan, your final thoughts on this in kind of a summary of your report in terms of your conclusion. Um, well, um, as t- for the government scholarship and incentives, I, I believe it's a very good thing. Uh, as an African student, I've, I've, I studied in, uh, in uh, France for a, few, for a few years before um, going to China and then South Africa. And, um, well, it was easy for me, but I knew, I knew that it was very hard for some people to get, like, visas. And I know it's getting harder, and the U.K. is just even worse. Um, and I believe that it's a great option that we have that now as African students to be able to get a scholarship. So that's a good thing for them. Now, uh, the system itself obviously has flaws. Probably uh, the selection process is a problem. And I've raised that uh, issue in, uh, in my report as well because um, it's left uh, to the governments to uh, take care of it. And sometimes, as it often works in Africa, it's, all, it's a system of networking, uh, networks and sometimes corruption. And that defeats the purpose because it's uh, originally made for people without means. And I've met quite a few um, students in China that were uh, uh, pretty rich or wealthy or like uh, kids of um, ambassadors or uh, diplomats or elites. And they were all on scholarship, and that's a pretty sad thing to, to see, to witness. Um, so if there could be a change in that, in that perspective, that would be great. But I think the general trend is quite positive. Kobus, that shouldn't come as a surprise that we're kind of seeing a little bit of failings on the, uh, on the equality of it all for, for, the, for the kinds of African students who are going to China. Yeah, you know, kind of what what struck me as a as a kind of a sub sub aspect of this was, you know, last week we spoke with Al Shafuri about the impact of elite relationships between China and Africa and the relationship, the influence of China on African elites. And it seems to me that the the fact that the elites children are all studying in Beijing, you know, that would that has to include, you know, increase, uh, you know, the the influence of China on African elites generally. I think it'll be very interesting to see how, you know, when these elite kids now then move up, you know, and take on the kind of posts that they pretty well, pretty well would have taken on anyway, you know, kind of in the way that African elites work. You know, it, it'll it'd be interesting to see how the Chinese influence, you know, kind of, uh, you know, kind of t- is, is visible in the kind of stuff that they do in their policies. And also whether the fact that they were all together in these, you know, in these African students organized, student organizations in Beijing, which is sometimes a difficult, you know, place for them to be, it'll be interesting to see whether the kind of links that they made between them is going to influence, you know, the kind of links between 
Africa, different kinds of African elites within Africa hmm. as well. It's, it's, it'll be interesting to see how it develops. Well, elites or otherwise, it does seem to me like it's going to help in the long run affect uh, an understanding, a better understanding between uh, China and Africa. Hopefully, it will become a little bit more uh, diverse in the types of students from Africa who are going to Beijing. That always helps. Um, you know, one of the things that strikes me is that, and Anne, I think you can confirm this as well, is, you know, while we talk about, you know, the Africans in Beijing, you don't see that many Americans there for the most part. Um, I'm always surprised, and I've been over the years, I've been going back and forth to China and studying Chinese now for 30 years. And, you know, there's a lot of popularity in the States to study Chinese, but not a lot of, uh, of foreign students in Beijing. Am I, am I correct on that uh, in terms of from the United States? No, I, I've had the same experience. I think I've seen more uh, Europeans, and I guess I, I notice Africans more. But there's also the idea that most of the Americans go to Shanghai and they focus on business. So okay. I don't know. Well, it's just one small indicator of a broader relationship, and it's going to be something that we continue to to, to monitor in the weeks to come. Uh, and, and also, again, I cannot recommend enough Hanan's excellent report that she wrote. And it's, uh, it's at the CCS website. Uh, we'll again post it, uh, and hopefully we can post it again on Facebook and try to generate a little bit of discussion, in part because our Facebook page is heavily, heavily populated by young people uh, and students. And so we would like to think, do you want to go to China to study? And if you want to go to China, what do you want to study? Do you want to study Mandarin, engineering, business? What would it be? And also the last question we'd like to hear from you is that if you do go to China and study, do you want to come back to Africa or would you like to stay in China and try to get a job there? We'd love to hear what you think. Again, the address, of course, is Facebook dot com slash China Africa Project and is doing an excellent job at kind of posting and moderating the discussion that's going on over there. Every once in a while, Cobus and I get in as well. I, I seem to kind of be a little more confrontational with folks than Anne is, um, but nonetheless, <laughs> that just keeps it interesting. Um, Hanan, you play the, bad guy. I do play bad guy, and I like it. And, and I'm and I'm frustrated that when I put a comment out there, I don't get a response all the time. So if uh, don't be afraid to kind of fire back at me and tell me that I'm wrong uh, or I'm a jerk. Um, Hanan, one of the things that we do at the end of every show is we go around and kind of, you know, let people know if they want to follow you online, if you've got a Twitter account, a Facebook page or anything like that. Uh, are you on Twitter by any chance? I am. I don't tweet much, but I'm, I'm trying to uh, step up on that. On that okay. Um, well, yeah, I have a Twitter account. Uh, what, <laughs> if, do, you, do you mind and, uh, kind of sharing it with everybody? No, not at all, actually. It's a good thing. It's H uh, Ferjani, so H-F-E-R-D-J-A-N-I. Great. And, of course, uh, Anne, where, where can people find you in addition to our Facebook page? My Twitter is A-N-N-E-S-H-E-R-0-7. And do you have your Weibo account yet set up? Not yet. Oh, you need soon. To, soon you need to. Uh, and then, of course, Cobus with the probably by far the most confusing Twitter name of all of ours. <laughs> uh, where can people find you on Twitter if they want to follow what you're writing and reading these days? Uh, my Twitter handle is Stadenesk. That's S-T-A-D-N-E-S-Q-U-E. You know, it's a name that's actually growing on me, and it's uh, in this <laughs> um, And you can find me over at E-O-Lander. I'm, I'm regretting it every day. Oh, I think it's great. Uh, I'm over at E-O-Lander, E-O-L-A-N-D-E-R. I was a little bit negligent this week, but next week I'll be back on uh, tweeting almost every day, putting the top headlines. And so it's a great way for you to stay on top. Uh, it's kind of like a news a newswire of sorts. So so that'll do it for this edition of the China Africa podcast. Again, follow us on Stitcher, on iTunes, on SoundCloud. We're, we're all over the place. And again, we'd love to hear your feedback. Uh, and then we'll be back again next week with another edition of the show on the China Africa podcast. 